previously on the What's in Your Head podcast. Isn't it always funny how the science community put a lot of give and take, you, if you will, into explanations and distance? Saw this potentially scary headline, Gordon. Potentially hazard asteroid twice the size of the Empire State Building will, this is the word he used, skim past Earth on Thursday, NASA says. A potentially hazardous asteroid twice, twice the size of the Empire State Building will skim, skim. The asteroid name 418135, because why not, has an estimated diameter between 1,150 and 2,650 feet. For those of you across upon us, 350 to 780 meters. It dropped on Russia. Okay. Skim! Breaking Earth's orbit. Now, we're we talking about our At orbit. a blistering speed of 23,300 miles per hour. This is happening Thursday. Skim! Past the Earth at 23,300 miles per hour. Or 33,400 kilometers per hour for those you across the pond. We like freedom twelfths. I'm not making this up. Thankfully, at its closest point of skimming, the asteroid traveling more than 30 times the speed of sound that's going to skim past the Earth on Thursday will come about 2 million miles. <laughs> skim! Well, I guess that's skimming in space miles. The What's in Your Head podcast can be found on Stitcher, Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are found. You can also download this podcast, as well as all podcasts from Digital 410 Media, at d-410.com. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. See that different pot. What's going on, everybody? It's the another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. Just recently, we had some man- uh, malfunctions on our audio board, and I hit the wrong pot because, well, I had to go from pot one to pot two, so I forgot to unmute myself. But speaking of unmuting themselves, welcome to another episode. Joining us, as always, the old faithful one, Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing tonight, sir? Doing fine. How are you? I'm well. I am. Just to start a day three in my new life and career, we kind of talked about it last few episodes, but uh, things are going on. It's as crazy as it sounds, unless you've been a business owner and the business owners listening will understand this. After 18 years, it's just so nice to be a nine to fiver. It's so nice to clock in at nine. Actually, I'm an eight to fiver, so clock in at eight, clock out at five. Don't worry about it until Tuesday. Friday comes. I don't have people texting me all weekend, but anyhow, we, we covered that, you know, pretty good last week, but no, it's going right. great. Um, it's going well. I'm super happy. The company is small. It's basically almost a, the exact kind of environment I've been working in all these years, except for I was working by myself because I was out in a truck mm-hmm. all day, but in the office environment, it's just, as I was explaining to my new boss the other day, I, there's no feeling of hierarchy there. Um, it's me and, th- uh, the owner and two other cats. Um, he just relocated from California to here and he has customers all over the country, but mm-hmm. all the employees, um, there's no feeling of hierarchy, even though, even though the people working there longer than me, we all just feel like we're four people working towards the same objective and, um, sharing knowledge with each other. It's almost like if you had a job where you sat around with world war two historians all day and maybe 
let's say we're publishing a magazine or something and instead mm-hmm. of instead of you know having a feeling of hierarchy you know when you're working on an article you'd come hey um i need your expertise on this subject or i'm working on something oh you've been working on this thing i it's the same way um somebody's that's a refreshing change it's, breath it's of nice. fresh air i'm sure and not only that, but for the first time in years, I'm around people who know as much, if not more than me on the subject. And so now I'm almost learning new things and feeling inspired and renewed opposed mm-hmm. to just having the entire load on my back and just wearing me down. But um, mm-hmm. one thing we want to do a little, I guess, bookkeeping, housekeeping, um, yeah, housekeeping, bookkeeping, it's a whole different matter. <laughs> um, housekeeping, <laughs> as you guys can see, if you're uh watching on the YouTube channel or listening on the podcast tomorrow. Once again, Jeff Copsetta is not with us tonight. Now, don't worry. Jeff is still part of the show, but Jeff is out doing things um, that are completely awesome. It's great for the community. It's great for history. And it's going to you know, reflect well on us here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Um, he's talked about it some in the past. I don't want to get into it because I don't know what he's at liberty to say and not to say. But we will just say how many times we can say say in the same sentence. We're going to try a couple more times. Um, We are going to say that he is in the middle of pre-production on a project that he got brought on to do, not only as a historical advisor, but he also has a a role in the um, project, let's just say. And I know their um, shoot schedule starts in June, so right now he's heavily into pre-production. So... Other than you know handling his day to day jobs and his responsibility to his family, now he's he's taking on the um, task, the Herculean task of making sure that this uh, filmed based project that he's working on has is historically as correct as possible. And um, not only that, but as I said, he's got a role in the uh, project as well. And so I would say once again, I just based off the text messages, I know. Shooting schedule starts in June. I don't know how long of a project it's going to be. So we'll just say Jeff will probably be in and out occasionally between now and I would say probably safe to say July or August. Um, Don't know post-production, all that. But it's kind of cool because, you know, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, we kind of owe at least mine and Jeff's relationship to movie making as we've said before and you guys know longtime listeners we owe a lot jeff and i got to know each other through the project of walking point and um that's how i met him he was the historical advisor on that which was the um short film about the marine dogs of war by rj nevins and black 17 productions um they shot the end of the movie down here and i went out and interviewed them actually went out to their staff and crew dinner the night before kind of preemptively met everybody they invited me out to the set i hung out for the final shooting day and then went to the cast house set up my podcast studio to box and interviewed damn near everybody and then um a year i don't know six months later i was out in texas doing a podcast out there with jeff um jeff came on the show a few more times and then when uh, walking point they kind of got hooked up with a doverman group for the american kennel association and during one of the dog shows in Orlando, Florida, Walking Point reached out to me and said, hey, we got a booth down here. Um, I need your help. <laughs> Can you come decorate it, make it look more World War II? So I took my mannequin Steve, all my haversacks, and all my World War II stuff, set it up in their booth, and we did a podcast from there. And so fast forward, you know, Jeff's on the show, and now he's out doing some more um, movie stuff. And 
actually, during last week's episode, I didn't answer until after the episode, RJ texted me. Now, we have promoted uh, Walking Point when they were on uh, Vimo or Vimeo, and then when they premiered on Amazon Prime, which you can still see them. But um, they asked me if I can come on Sunday, May 15th, 8 p.m. Central Time. They're going to be doing their YouTube premiere, and they're actually going to do a live stream and have a bunch of us on. Now, obviously, I didn't have anything to do with the movie per se, but because of my relationship and all the promotional stuff I've been doing, they've asked me to come on. I'm sure Jeff will be on there, too. I haven't talked to him about it. He's just been super busy. But I'm sure you'll see Jeff and I and myself, and I'll put up links on the page about um, the Walking Point YouTube premiere where you guys can start watching the movie on YouTube. And pre-show, we were kind of talking about this, and Henry mentioned that he too is in the is in the um early stages of i guess pre 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 production on an up and coming um world war ii movie documentary 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 so give us so what's the scuttlebutt is definitely we're we're getting our feet out there and helping the world of uh, documentaries and film production and as far as historical and advice but uh what do you got coming down the pipe it is a film by Damon Stout. It's going to be called Cowboy Down. And it, I have talked about it before, but to hit the highlights again, Damon Stout, <clears throat> my friend, um, and the guy making this film, is the distant cousin of a Marine fighter pilot ace from World War II named Robert Cowboy Stout, who he, he became an ace over Guadalcanal and all the Solomon Islands air actions um earlier in the war and then later commanded a corsair squadron that that actually was based off of peleliu it was vmf 114 and they were so when my dad and all his buddies were were dealing with with everything on peleliu it was vmf 114 that was flying close air support and dropping napalm and thousand pound bombs on bloody nose ridge um but cowboy stout was the distant cousin of my friend damon and cowboy was you know, the, the sad thing about it, Don, was even after the battle ended and, and, and my dad and all his buddies and all the Marines and, and then later the soldiers from the 81st Infantry Division left Peleliu to, to go on and fight the rest of the war wherever they were going to be. VMF-114 stayed on Peleliu and kept flying flak suppression missions over the northern Palau Islands because there were, you know, thousands of Japanese with plenty of ammunition, you know, two hours up north of where Peleliu was. Sure. And so um, March 4th of 1945, literally just, you know, the last stages of World War II, Robert Stout was shot down by Flack over Coror and, and crashed and was killed. And they didn't find him until two years later. Wow. Some, some local islanders found him. He was still strapped in his Corsair. But um, Damon Stout is making a film called Cowboy Down. And several months ago now, uh, I had reached out to him because I was just looking up some stuff on the internet about Cowboy because I love Corsairs. I love Marine Aviation World War II. And he and I started communicating. He, of course, had heard of my dad and my dad's book. And really, he just sensed my passion for the subject. And he said, hey, let's collaborate. So we have been, but it, we're probably several months away from that thing coming out, but it's going to be a doc feature film, you know, not, not a movie, a documentary. I, well, you were talking and I was thinking, is it safe to say, or maybe just cause I'm not into the aviation as much, but 
Is it safe to say when it comes to war aces that I guess maybe the Marine Corps more than the Army, but it seems to me on the subject of war aces, most of the the famed war aces around World War One. Do you think World War Two war uh, war aces get the um, limelight they deserve, or am I off base? Because it's it always seems to me it's always about Rickenbacker, you know, and all the World War One guys. It's like I don't know. Maybe more in European theater you hear about it, but I don't hear a lot of people just throwing around World War II fighter ace a lot. Yeah, if you if you read about it as much as I have in the past, I mean, because I, Pappy Boynton, you mm-hmm. know, I think Boynton had, and somebody may set me straight on this, he had boy, like 26 or 27 or 28 kills. I think the last one or two were a little bit questionable. Uh, and I think he tied Rickenbacker's record. You had Joe Foss. See, there's another um, who, name I'm not familiar with. So, yeah, see, Joe Foss was an iconic Marine fighter pilot. He was actually later on after World War II, he was the first president of the of the uh, the then nascent NFL. Um, <clears throat> God, imagine that nowadays a guy like Joe Foss <laughs> being associated with the NFL. But yeah, Joe Foss was was a stud, man. I mean, he had 26 kills over the Solomon Islands. Um, most of his kills were F4 were in F4F Wildcats. Um, you had now the Corsairs were the blue ones with the more skewed wings, correct? Yeah, Corsairs had the gull. Yeah, the w wing. And the reason they did that, they had to kink the wings like that to keep the landing gear short enough because it had the largest propeller ever mounted. I think it was a twelve foot one inch propeller, Holy. largest prop ever mounted on a piston engine airplane to that time. So they had to, you know, it was a carrier plane. It was always designed to be a carrier based fighter, and so they they didn't want the landing gear to be too long and spindly, so they they did the gull wings. They they kinked them downwards like that. Now, was there any um, I don't know what word I want to look for, but uh, let's just say, was there any negative effect when it came towards maneuverability, or did it actually help with the gull wings being that way? I know one thing that I've read it helped was when pilots would have to ditch. It kind of gave them an advantage because if you look at those wings being swept up like that, it gave the water somewhere to go. Your fuselage had a little bit of space. But oh, to like answer a- your question, I mean, the Corsair was one of the fastest airplanes. I think top speed. Of course, there were many variants of it, but yeah. the F4U one A and one one D, you know, you're talking a top speed well over 400 miles per hour. Of course, like an aviation historian pointed out, people always want to talk about top speed. All that was was a number. I mean, you're talking about an airplane, factory fresh, you know, the pistons, rings, the seals, everything's perfect. You know, fuel is clean and perfect. All the lubrications are taken care of. Yeah, it can achieve that speed. But give it six months <laughs> in the tropics, yeah, give it six, sandy give environment. It six, <laughs> yes, give it six months in theater. And, you know, you're not going to be anywhere near that top speed. But but that being said, um, I mean, the Corsair was just a superb airplane. It didn't start out that way. It definitely had teething problems. Um, it was known to be quite the beast at first. But, you know, the, it was given to the Marines because the Navy was having so much trouble getting a carrier qualified. I mean, they had a, just a bitch of a time trying to land it. It's so um, it's so funny because we always have these conversations, and in my mind, I start picturing things I never thought of. You're talking about fresh pistons, straight off the line, fresh gas. How many times during these campaigns, after bombing or shelling or artillery strikes at the night, 
Were they pulling gas out of bullet-written barrels that are no longer clean and yeah. fresh that had well, dirt and sand in it that then clogged up fuel filters and all that crap? Yeah, I mean, on Guadalcanal, it was happening all the time because, in fact, I mean, they, they early on in the Guadalcanal, of course, you know, that that everything on Guadalcanal was on a shoestring at first. Mm-hmm. And when, when you had the so-called Cactus Air Force set up camp there to, to fly air support for the beleaguered Marines, and, I mean, these guys were flying SBD Dauntlesses and FRF Wildcats, I mean, they early on when the Japanese were were shelling them every night, they lost some major fuel supplies. And so, you know, they were draining like an airplane would come in, be too shot up to salvage it in any way. And so the Marine ground crewmen would drain the fuel out of that airplane. And then, you know, I think they had these big pieces of I've read in some memoirs, they would use pieces of cheesecloth or something. They had a way to, to filter it, you know. Hell, they could have just grabbed an old HP T-shirt off someone's bunk. I mean, well, it, would they, a, yeah, it would have been a slow drain, too. but it would have worked. Sure. And so they were anything they could to keep the few planes they had flying. Um, and gosh, if I knew we were going to talk Cactus Air Force, I would have <laughs> looked some stuff up that fresh in my mind. I didn't know we we're going to go down that road. But well, that's um, a nice thing when it's just me and you. We we just kind of just go down where the road takes us. We just we just jot a few talking points down and we just pull that cord and see where it takes us. And we've actually had quite a, a lot of great feedback about these episodes. No, I, and I enjoy it too. Just to go back to your question though, uh, Don, I mean, I think, yeah, when you really aviation, the world war two aviation to me is, is, is a subject of great passion, be it Pacific ETO B 17s, B 29s in the Pacific B 24s. I don't care. Corsairs, Wildcats, Hellcats, P-47 Thunderbolts, Mustangs, I love them all. And when you really start getting into some of the the literature that's on it, I mean, yeah, man, there's some iconic um, aces that, that that were highly regarded and, and written about and talked about quite a bit. Um, sure, you, you know, Rickenbacker's kind of that household name, as is um, – Oh, who was? There Red were Baron. others from World War One. Just <laughs> throwing out. You I said the Red to. Baron. <laughs> well, there you go, the Red Baron. You know, um, but I think World War Two aviation has it was certainly has every bit, if not more, of the accolades. You know, if you step off into that world. Yeah, I was just having another one of these thoughts. It's like submarine or pilot which one's more confined and obviously the answer would be submarine because if you're a pilot you can at least eject out and have a second opportunity to survive whereas if you're in a submarine it gets shot and taken oh, yeah. out if you don't go up you're you're uh, more confined but i was just i was kind of wondering if, if that was part of your draw to aviation was the fact that these guys are in a confined area and to a certain extent, once they got in a dogfight, it's either you win it or you don't. You know, you don't have the ability to kind of flatten yourself out and get into the bottom of a, a foxhole no, or a slit trench or, you know, and get a little more protected in, in mm-hmm. combat like you do being an infantry troop. And the, the I've read enough pilot memoirs from World War II that, you know, you, you, there's certain there's a certain amount of chivalry, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's a certain amount of chivalry in the way, certainly in World War One. You know, you, you, the Red Baron would salute his his victim after he shot him down, and well, what did when when the Red Baron was shot down, didn't they fly over and drop a wreath? Yeah, I believe so. During, you know, um, 
that kind of thing certainly did not happen between the Americans and the Japanese uh, or the Germans for that matter, although there were some instances of Germans pulling up alongside mm -hmm. a bullet riddle B-17 as described by Adam Makos in uh, A Higher Call. But uh, there Actually, were some chivalrous moments there, certainly not in the Pacific. I was the Pacific, they went the other way. They were sending Pappy Boyton radio. We're, we're coming after you. We're, we're, oh, yeah. we're down in your ass. There's a hit out it, on you. It was well known. Boeington would get his guys. I mean, when they were really getting into the air combat over Bougainville and the, the Japanese were just sending hordes of fighters and bombers down from a ball. And, and Boynton and his guys are on Munda and, you know, some of the northern Solomons, central Solomons and flying over Bougainville. Uh, you know, he, he'd, he would kind of have an idea where they would be and he'd get on the radio, come on up and fight you sons of bitches, come on up and mm -hmm. fight, you know, and, yep. you know, that is, of course it was somewhat a character the way they portrayed it in the, the, the black sheep squadron TV show of the seventies. But, you know, Hey, Boynton, what are you doing? You know, some <laughs> of that actually did happen from yeah. what I've read, but, but a good fighter pilot, what I started to say, Don was a good fighter pilot. World War II would all chivalry aside. If the last thing you wanted to do was dogfight, yeah. you wanted to sneak up on the guy before he ever saw you. If he saw you and it turned into a turning fight, you you were already, you know, one lap down. That was not what a good pilot wanted. And from what I understand, when it came to um, recruiting, they looked for cats between the ages of 17 and 20 with the idea being that once guys got to be 21 and married, then they start second guessing. They had things to live for. Whereas these 17 to 20 year olds, they had the, as all teenagers do, whether you're skateboarding, uh, surfing, riding motorcycles like a dick, you have that sense of invincibility. And so sure. they would yeah. look for that age group in their pilots because, and they prefer they not be married because they want them to not, oh, I got a wife and kid at home. I need to, that split second of second guessing can end up getting you dead. Whereas if you have that pilot who just feels like, oh, nothing can get me, they're flying on quick, fast instincts and gung ho. Let's do it. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, for the fighter pilots. Yeah. But you know, the library of America volume that we've talked about, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that had my father's, my father's book, Samuel Hines book flights passage. He was a Marine torpedo bomber pilot. And then Alvin Kernan's book, who was a sailor, he was an aviation ordnance man, um, called crossing the line. I, I just read that whole volume which I told you about, well, Samuel Hines' book, I really enjoyed because I'd never read a memoir by a torpedo bomber pilot. Okay. He flew TBMs, you know, the, they called the Grumman TBM, the Turkey. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, there was nothing sleek, sexy, you know, dangerous about it. It was a very predictable airplane. And it was interesting to read Hines take on it because he had buddies who were, you know, after they got out of primary flight training and the initial phases of it, guys started like some guys would go bombers some guys would go fighters and he talks about how you know he said i felt like the the tbm or the tbf if it was manufactured by grumman tbm was manufactured by general motors he said i just felt like that airplane suited my personality it was yeah. slow steady predictable go out there get the job done be the piece said it, i just felt like it was the perfect choice for me I just had another one of those weird thoughts. You're talking about how the to do the two different models were identified by the manufacturer, but they're mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes the same piece of machinery. And uh, we we've seen that all across the line when it came to the Jeeps. Some were made by Willie, some were made by Ford. 
I just had a flash. Nowadays, with the way everything is about copyrights and patents and all this, even in worn, let's just say we're in worn, torn America, and we, I can still see like GM filing patent, you know, or oh, we we don't want to make this, you know, if we're going to make this version of this new military vehicle, we got to, you know, I can just see them nowadays just bickering back and forth. Oh, that one looks, it can't be look. I, to me, it's yeah, just, it's like how sad it is that that. That's the first thing that came to my mind. We're talking about two different planes from World War II that will basically different model numbers, but it's for intents and purposes the same damn plane. Mm-hmm. How everybody was just, hey, retool your retool exactly, your factories. Yeah. Here's the specs. It needs to match these specs. Um, let's just get as many out as we can. Well, the F4U Corsair was manufactured by Chance Vault, but it was also contracted to Goodyear, and they were designated FG like FG1s. Same same airplane by the looks of it, but they were made by Goodyear as opposed to the F-40Us that were actually made by Chance Vaught. I think the FGs, I read somewhere a long time ago, I don't think they had the folding wings. I could be wrong on that. But, I mean, hell, even the Japanese did it, you know, because the, the A6M-0, the much vaunted Japanese fighter, was manufactured by and designed by Mitsubishi and built by Mitsubishi, but they also contracted them to Nakajima. I did a, a podcast, gosh, a couple of years ago. I actually had uh, the, what did he, the archivist is the actual term they use in corporate mm-hmm. America. He was the archivist for the Goodyear company. And he really? was on and he was talking about the things that Goodyear did. Yeah. And believe it or not, they actually did more with tank parts than they actually did aerospace equipment. You would think that they would do more aeronautical stuff, but they were producing uh, all kinds of stuff. Well, man, when you talk about the needs of the war, so um, just got done reading, a, a, you know, I was on that podcast last week with the gentleman, um, the 6th Marine Division historian and the, the gentleman, and we're going to talk about that because I think the, I've already reached out to Laura, the 6th Marine Division historian. She would love to to be a guest on our show, and I think it'd be a great show. Um, but Neil McCallum was his name, and he was a mortarman in F Company, 2nd Battalion, 29th Marines. He was wounded near Sugarloaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you get to talking. So preparing for that show, I read the Commemorative Marine Corps series on Okinawa. It was about a 50-page softback book. I read it online. I just wanted to have my, you know, be thinking Okinawa when I was asked to be a part of that show. Sure. And you talk about tanks. I mean, so... How many variants of the M4 Sherman were there? Mm-hmm. You know, you you had the Army. The, I think the point was made in this volume that a lot of guys like the M4A3 variant of the Sherman tank. It was a gas-powered Ford V8 engine. They liked the power. They liked the fact that it was a gas burner. Now, is that there the one were where Marines. they is that the one where they switched from the parallel suspension to the vertical, or was it vice versa? I know the way you can identify some of the Shermans is through the suspension. They had the the vertical versus the horizontal. They made that transition at some point. I think maybe that, the, that's a good question. I'm, I'm the not A4. sure. Huh? I think it was the later model. I think it was the, well, the A4. What I was going to say was a lot of the Marine tankers. So six Marine division, first Marine division, you had the six Marine tank battalion and the first Marine tank battalion. And the guys in the first Marine tank battalion preferred the older M4 A2, which had twin diesel engines. Yeah. And, and that's what they used at Peleliu. Because we saw some remains of tanks when I was there, and you look down the engine compartment and see they had a radial engine, you know. And that makes sense because a lot of people don't realize this. Um, when people hear diesel, they think modern day diesel. Those diesels back then ran off anything flammable. 
You could yeah. put filtered motor oil in there in the gas tank and it would run off of it. You could put vegetable oil, it would run off of it. Anything flammable, paint thinner, you could put in that. Nowadays, diesel has to, you know, unless you do some modification, especially all the chips, you need clean diesel. But back then, those diesels ran off of anything. Oh, yeah. Well, now, I mean, oh, good Lord. I mean, we, we see this with fuel systems, Caterpillar machines now. I oh, mean, yeah. the, the fuel has to be so clean because you can't have any particulate matter. You know, coming out of the exhaust system. That that's that's a product of the twenty first century, man. It, yeah, you're you're. T- Go ahead. Um, now before we transition, because we were talking about the air, the plane manufacturers. I was googling, getting on my get my Google food going, but it failed. What was the largest manufacturer of planes in uh, uh Southern California um, during World War Two? Well, was it consolidated? Because <sighs> the the most mass produced airplane in World War Two was a B twenty four Liberator, and that was built by Consolidated. I can't remember which one it was, but there's. I'll have to look it up. I was listening to Adam Crowley. He was talking about it. The one of the largest insurance health insurance companies now came out of World War II because that particular. And I'll have to find out. Um, it was maybe Southern California, even Northern California, but it was one of the largest airplane manufacturing plants during the war in California. They had so many employees working on a twenty four hour shift. Mm-hmm. that they had a it was either it's either yeah i think it's insurance anyhow they had on-campus hospitals because there's so many workplace injuries that mm-hmm. uh due to the protocols they made for getting these people in and out of the hospital is either no i think it's one of the largest I'll, I'll look for the next episode it's either one of the largest insurance or one of the largest hospital chains now came out of world war ii because of the manufacturing plant had so many workplace accidents they had an on-campus hospital huh. And um, yeah, that's where it came from. I'll have to right off. I don't know who that who that would have been. I'm trying to think if I ever read anything in the past that, that mentioned. I'll, that. I'll I'll come up with it. That's interesting though. Yeah, it's it's always amazing how much stuff came out of World War II. But um, no, not Pfizer. Anyhow, I'll have it for the next episode. I don't want to bring everything to a screeching halt. Um, but yeah, you're talking about tanks. Yeah, it's just. It's amazing all that stuff. And while we're on the subject of um, the Pacific, I brought it up last week. I just started it. Mm-hmm. And I want to. Walter Lloyd's The Lonely Vigil. This book is fantastic. Um, you and I were kind of talking about how I, at least I wanted to learn a little bit more about the Coast Watchers. And I, I got this book. First and foremost, the read on this. This is very. I don't want to compare it to your father's work, but I want to say the ease of read and the not want to put it down aspect of it is very similar to your father's in the fact that you don't feel like you're reading a high school or college history book. You don't Mm -hmm. feel like you're doing homework when you read this. It's written in the third person, but as you're reading through it, you feel like you're almost in the first person or almost have the narrative view as if you're watching a movie. Interesting. Um, It, it's about the coast watchers of the Solomons, but it primarily focuses on Guadalcanal, Bougainville, and New Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, here's just some of the cats involved, some of the major actors, if you will. Now, I'm going to brutalize some of these names. We'll just chalk it up to my learning disability. But uh, at Olola is Martin Clemens. At uh, Lavraro is Snowy Rhodes. Um, Bernard Don McFarlane and... This is the one that excites me. Do you remember mm-hmm. in Helmet for My Pillow when um, Lecky was talking about this clambering, boyish 
large redheaded man who had like this all these natives carrying all his stuff and it's just this big circus of a show came down and it was a coast watcher it, i'll have to go and pull it from his book but i remember him talking about this big flamboyant loud bolsterous kind of heavy set guy coming down the hill and making this big ruckus and it was one of the coast watchers and i believe because as you know in helmet for my pillow most of his most of his guys are described via nicknames he doesn't use a lot of people's original names chuckler runner hoosier yeah but i i speculate that he's making reference to one kenneth uh kenneth hay Uh, kenneth hay was such a flamboyant jubilant heavy lifestyle person that even while hiding out in the hills in Guadalcanal, he had a propane-operated refrigerator so that he, huh. on good nights, can serve his butter iced. <laughs> huh. um, over on Tagalog, we have Leif Schroeder and Joe Martin. Uh, Tulagi. Tulagi, okay. And Jack Reed was on Northern Bougainville. Paul Mason was over on Southern Bougainville. And then our friend, gotta love this, Sergeant Major Jacob Vuza is covered in this quite a bit. I love Vuza. Even after his, as we know, what happened to him from the hands of the Japanese, he was sent on more and more missions. Guy was just hardcore. Uh, they, did you know um, later and after, right around the time we secured Henderson, well, before it was truly secure, but when we took hold of it, we actually brought in a uh, gentleman who was a naval grad, and he set up a radio station right off the southern tip of Henderson Field that they gave the call letters of Ken. And his name was Hugh McKenzie. And I think I've heard about that. And so basically, once he set up shop, because at the very beginning of the war, <laughs> the way the Coast Watchers worked, they had these teleradios and they would communicate on Channel Z. And it was basically a um, relay system where they would relay all the way up the islands and then go to, I think, New Zealand. Uh-huh. And then it was then sent up to Hawaii. And so there was a bit of latency. And so it would take sometimes eight to 12 hours by the time it got up to Hawaii and then sent back down to the Navy. It, there was quite a bit of a latency from the time some of the activity was spotted till the time that the information got out. Mm-hmm. But once McKenzie set up his um, station Ken off of Henderson Field, it dramatically cut that down. They were able to get that information in no time at all. Mm-hmm. But where the story gets interesting is when they get into Mr. Father um, Albert LaBelle. No, I'm sorry. Father Albert LaBelle is another guy. Uh, the one I'm thinking of, I skipped ahead, was Father Emery de, de Clerc. Mm-hmm. Now, as they explain, Mr. Father Henry de Clerc was a diminutive priest, and he basically had um, medical training, and he he was down there for so long um, he kind of became the overall spiritual leader to the natives who were, uh, who converted to Christianity. He was like their go-to guy. It was like their own little Pope, if you will. Mm-hmm. And when, um, when the Japanese started to invade, <laughs> Bailey's over crying, killing me. When, when Japan started to invade and all the, um, priest and the nuns were trying to evacuate all the natives like hey you're not leaving are you and he's like no no i'm not leaving but they think i'm leaving in order to keep the you know the the military and those in charge he basically 
pretended he was going to evacuate. And then when the submarine came to get a lot of the people who were evacu- a lot of the uh, Europeans who were evacuating from Guadalcanal and in uh, Bougainville and the whole area mm-hmm. during the early wars, he basically ran off into the woods and hid for three days until everybody left. And then he came out and all the natives basically kind of held like a ceremony. As the war progressed, he went from being a very stout religious man, strictly, I need to do what's best for my flock. I need to do what's best. We're going right. to stay neutral, do the best for my flock. As time progressed, and once he got permission from his higher-ups that it was okay to go from what's best to my flock uh-huh. and protecting them from the wolves to it's okay to protect them by taking out the wolves. Things changed for him when a couple of the native chiefs asked him to lead them on a scouting party to kill Japanese at an outpost because they were tired of being ran out of their villages. They're tired of all their crops and food stores being raided by the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so he basically said, okay, I'll do it under these conditions. One, you answer only to me. I basically become your general. Two, um, we need a 20-person basically military. Once you join, you cannot get out. He, he uh, quickly flipped the switch. And, and as he's organizing this 20-man group, about two days before his assault, Another group of natives came up and said, hey, no worries. We took care of it. We killed them all. <laughs> and so they slowly started doing like these commando raids, killing these small outposts of Japanese. And, um, but more importantly, he started forming his, his little band of native missionaries, you know, mercenaries going around, you know, freedom fighters taking, up, taking on the Japanese that word got back to the Marines that he had this kind of play over the natives, this control that anytime the Marines did any major operation that required native guides or, you know, um, intelligence, they would fly a plane over, drop leaflets out to him and say, Hey, can you provide 20, um, scouts for this mission? If so, put your hand above your head. If not stand pencil still. And so they were basically coming to him anytime they needed, um, canoes, um, guides, anything, anything having to do with the natives. He became their go-to point man. And, and this guy who prior to the war was 35 years old. Could you imagine 35 years old doing all this stuff? Well, wow. diminutive little, never heard a flight. And now he's almost like a warlord in his own way. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get into that. You ever heard the story where some people claim that, Oh, Amelia Earhart was Amelia Earhart was spotted on Guadalcanal. I'm, yeah, I've heard something about that because you know supposedly she she was going to what Howland Island or something that was not far from Bougainville or you know that area. So I yeah, some I, people claim that uh, she was shot down because she was basically doing espionage missions for the Navy or whatever. The reason. The scuttlebutt got around that she was on Guadalcanal. She wasn't. There was a young uh, Methodist nurse on, uh, does Vela Lavelle sound proper? Yeah, Vela Lavella. That that was farther up the slot. Yeah, so one Mayor Farland was a Methodist nurse on Vela Lavelle. And she too, being a nurse, she was called down to um, another... Coast Watcher outpost where a um, 
down pilot was recovered and needed some medical attention. And so mm-hmm. she made like a 48 hour trek through the jungles, hiding from the um, Japanese made her way there. And by, by the time she got there, um, the pilot was being evacuated because the coast watchers got a hold of station Ken over off at Henderson and, and, um, got a rescue mission and they said she she walked 48 hours to do nothing more but to give him a shot of morphine and yes as he's getting on the uh on the landing craft but because she had been down there for so long she knew the native language she knew the area real well and through happenstance and communication with the coast watchers the coast watchers actually had a very very rudimentary encoding system because they never thought that they would be that heavily into it that the coast watching system was actually formed post world war one. And so they had a basic, Oh, I forget the name of the system. It was something super simple. It was basically just replace some letters with these letters and the Mm -hmm. coast watchers were never meant to be a defensive apparatus so far that the British group that founded the world war two equivalent of the coast watchers actually gave it the code name of Oh, crap. I just went completely blank. Ferdinand. It was called Operation Ferdinand. Does that name sound familiar to you? Not in that context. Ferdinand the Bull. Remember Ferdinand the Bull? He didn't want to be Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a pacifist. So they intentionally gave the Coast Watchers the nickname of Operation Ferdinand because your your job is to stay out of it, Uh report what you see, Uh be pacifist, and just don't get caught. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when Farland made this trip down to help the downed pilot and thus walking 48 hours, give him a shot in the ass with morphine as he was being evacuated, she wanted to do more. She felt like she she could provide more. And she convinced, um, I think it may have been Paul Mason or even Jack Reed, to allow her to participate in the Coast Watch program. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough... She was only part of the coast watching program for two days because as things happen to be, when you're where you're supposed to be, no one ever takes attendance, (laughs) right? Right. Well, when she left to go do this mission, people took attendance and noticed she was gone. And when they reported it was gone, it kind of raised the awareness of, oh, crap, we have women in the Solomons. We have women Mm -hmm. nurses and nuns down in these areas where the Japanese are invading we can't have women in harm's way, so we need to evacuate them. And so the reason Amelia Earhart was spotted on, spotted on Guadalcanal was because two days after she helped participate in the coast watching program, she was forcefully removed and was uh, brought to Guadalcanal for a few days. And when she got off of the PB&Y, um, I guess near a first aid tent, there was a handful of um, wounded Marines who may or may not have been on morphine who saw her in a marine in a i think they they may have given her an army or a different uniform because she 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 changed at some point and being in their condition they they said oh it's amelia Earhart. they found her and that's how the rumor spread through guadalcanal that amelia Earhart had been found because someone saw one Merrill Farland, the Methodist nurse from Vela Lavella, walking around Guadalcanal, waiting to be sent back home, and so that's where that whole rigmarole came from. But um, this is all covered in this book, and 
I need to check this book out. It sounds really interesting. And well, I mean, the, and the thing I love about it is I've read Guadalcanal Diaries. I've read The Battle for Guadalcanal. I've read This Guadalcanal. I've read um, Strong Men Armed by Robert Leckie. I've read oh, yeah. for my Helmet for My Pillow. And so I've gotten a lot of the Guadalcanal side from the Marine and the Army aspect. Mm-hmm. This book fills in everything else that you didn't know about. They they actually talk about the Coast Watcher <laughs> report of the battle that resulted in the George S. Elliott being sunk. And so this kind of fills in all that gap. It's almost like reading this book, and I'm only I'm on page 145 out of 316. So I'm only halfway through. And it's almost like this book kind of completes the story of Guadalcanal almost. Because we've gotten okay. the army side before, we we've read the Marine Corps side. You know, we've we've read all the books as aforementioned, and through different voices and different information, they talk about the mission of Guadalcanal, and some have the ability to give firsthand accounts be, because who the authors are, and some of them give more of the logistical accounts because of their research side. But with the exception of hearing the occasional Coast Watchers, this is basically the coast watchers fair stand account because these coast watchers that I mentioned were still alive in 1977. And yeah. so they all gave the author photos. There's photos in here of them with their, you know, there's pictures of, uh, Clemens. There's pictures of snowy Rose yeah. in here. There's pictures of Joe Martin with their, um, there's pictures of Zusa in here. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it like, if you're a fan of Guadalcanal and you've read all the books and you kind of wish you, knew a little bit more this almost completes that story to the point where i'm thinking about getting maybe another one or two coast watchers books just to see if there's any more in there that's not in here but you know we were kind of mentioned two episodes back that you know maybe coast watchers don't get you know enough coverage well apparently back 1977 they they got quite a bit from this book and i'm well to your to your point about martin clemens um he, he was he's like the one that i had heard of because Go back to like, well, I mean, I didn't see it till many years later, but in 1991, there was a documentary made called The Lost Fleet of Guadalcanal. It was narrated by Stacy Keach. Okay. An incredibly cool documentary. Martin Clemens, they interviewed a bunch of real veterans. They went, um, it was made in 91, 92. It was the 50th anniversary of the battle, and they actually went to Guadalcanal and I, I think Vuza was there and they mm-hmm. honored him and had a big, you know, and those guys, those people are delightful, man. I mean, those, those Islanders, they, I mean, they just freaking loved the Marines The Marines loved them. Yeah. And, but Morgan Clemens was, uh, they talked about him quite a bit, a delightful interview. And, you know, he, he just went at that fly guy, you did Jack, you know, and it's just really cool to, he had a little dog with him, you know, and, uh, but, yeah, that's man. That's one documentary. I, I lost my copy of it. I got to. I got to find that thing, man. That that is a really compelling film on Guadalcanal. But they do talk about the Coast Watcher aspect of it quite a bit. And they get and I didn't talk about, but obviously because it's about Coast Watcher, they get into the <clears throat> waking up three a.m., packing up their equipment, and and running three miles into the into the jungle to get away from the Japanese who are trailing them. Mm-hmm. And now you think, well, you get up 3 a.m., you, you pack a haversack, you grab it. No, they're walkie-talkie. Their radios, I think, consisted of four different pieces, each one weighing 50 to 60 pounds. 
you have the teller radio, you had the batteries, you actually had the barrels of the liquid they used to recharge the batteries. You know about the Coast Watchers radios? Yeah. Okay. It took at least 15 natives to carry their equipment. Oh, yeah. So getting up at 3 a.m. And, and bugging out was by no means just two guys in some backpacks. It was, it was a circus, to say the least. And the other problem they get into in here is <clears throat> the, um, the natives were getting restless. They didn't know war. They didn't understand war. And through these different islands, you know, it wasn't like, oh, we're, we're one big happy band of natives. You had different different chiefs, different groups, different areas. And different factions, yeah. And so as the time progressed and the Japanese came, they started losing allies. Some of these groups started turn, changing. Oh, Coast Watchers. Well, it seems to me like the wind's blowing in the honor, the, to the, as I said in the book, to the natives, it was white on white crime. To them, it was Japanese or just another, a different form of white man. Mm-hmm. And so they had no, some of these cats had no loyalties, especially the ones who weren't, you know, practicing Christianity. They didn't have any loyalty towards the, uh, the missions down there. Right. And so a lot of them were saying, well, there's more of these white guys down here than there are you. Maybe we should work for them. And so they had to be careful on who, what natives were working with them mm-hmm. because then they would drop the dime to the Japanese on where the positions were. But then on the other hand, you had the natives who were loyal to us, but who were playing kind of, uh, they called them police boys who were intentionally working in labor parties for the Japanese. And they were able to report back to the ghost coast watchers, what was going on in Henderson field when the Japanese were building it because they were there working and working parties because when the Japanese came, I think they said something like something along the lines of you work for two or three months and you become a citizen. And once you become a citizen, then you're free to come and go as you will. And so these guys would volunteer in quotes to be a part of these working parties all day for the Japanese. And then they would sneak off into the jungles report back to, you know, their hierarchy who would then take that information to the coast watchers who would then relay it back. Here's, here's how far we are. Do we think Henderson, you know, how till the one Henderson field then, but this landing strip, it's almost to, towards completion. And so there was a lot of back and forth. Who can we trust? Who can't we trust? And the natives, they weren't just packing up their equipment. They would go, they would get like three or four trusted scouts and these scouts would go ahead two days in advance and build a village out of nothing so by the time these guys got there with their 12 carriers and their you know their teleradios their food their ammo all the survival equipment there would Mm -hmm. be three or four outbuildings made from you know leaves and bamboo like full built structures so the natives were like the ones who were in it with us were in it whole hog and they would go in advance and find these little areas and and they would make up in the palm trees, they would build six by f- six square observation posts that were camouflaged so that the Japanese couldn't see them when they flew by. So the Coast Watchers would not have existed or performed a third of their duties if it wasn't for the cooperation of the natives and the amount of work and effort they put in. And it's great to see that they get their their uh, dues in this as well. So once again, for those of you listening, I know a lot of you like to uh, 
read the books that we suggest. This is the 1977 release, and there are a handful of these on eBay, and you can find them on Amazon as well. This is Walter Lord's Lonely Vigil by Viking Press. If you're uh, into the Guadalcanal and you kind of want the now you know the rest of the story, the Paul Harvey equivalent, <laughs> check out Lonely <laughs> Vigil because I don't know. This is a this is a great book. Like I I I've been reading more. Obviously, it took me forever to read that Pelu book. Not that it was a bad book. It's just it was a lot of stuff that I've already known, just retold. Whereas this is stuff that I haven't read about at all. So it's like all fresh information, with the exception of a few things. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for something that you may not know much about, um, check out that book. You'll be happy you did. What do you got going on in your library over there? I am a couple hundred pages into Ian Toll's first volume, Pacific Crucible, first volume of his Pacific War trilogy. And um, very readable. It goes quick. I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, I'm also... Because of some research I'm doing for my the book I'm writing, I've got this book, this Osprey book, uh, Landing Ship Tanks, one of the new Vanguard series, and just talks about LSTs. Now, I think a lot of uh, people get LSTs and landing crafts confused. LSTs are the yeah. large, big-ass boats, and for those of you who've seen the HBO's miniseries of Pacific, the first time they show Eugene Sledge getting on a landing craft – and then you see those big ass doors open up and then they clunk, clunk, clunk down in the water. That's the landing craft leaving the holes of the LST. Right. Because people think LST is landing ship tank. And so in their mind, they think, well, that's got to be the, the, you know, the little boats because those look like tanks. No, <laughs> they were the big yeah. ass ones. Yeah. The, the, and the, of course, the LVTs, landing vehicle track, also known as amphibious trackers or ram tracks, mm-hmm. if you will. But uh, yeah, man, I love LSTs, I'm, and that's why I like these Osprey books because they got some great artwork in them, and they really get into the, you know, the numbers of them. And and because of a thing that I, that my dad had written in his original manuscript that I was trying to get clarification on, as if things aren't confusing enough, a lot of times, <laughs> and they did this on six six one, which is what the LST that he rode to Peleliu from Pavuvu on, they had an, <clears throat> a another landing type of craft on the deck of the LST called the LCT. It was LCT 858 landing craft tank. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the LST had like a, I think the full combat load of amphibious tractors or LVTs <laughs> for the LST was, I think 17 LVTs in the hold of the LST. Could you imagine the being the 18 year old and working like in the logistics area, typing all this crap up, yeah. trying to make sense of it. I had a roommate in college who did LSD <laughs> one time. So, but anyway, that's, that's the wrong, that's, another that's story. the wrong abbreviation. Yeah. Yeah. It's another story, but yeah. Yeah. And the LSD was landing ship dock. And there are actually two of those that went to the Bell, the Blau operation. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it could just get to be this, you know, melange of alpha, alphanumeric stuff when you're reading about it. But I do love reading about this stuff because it's, you know, just just when you know a member of your family was there and saw it and lived it, it, it just it kind of makes it a more visceral thing, I guess. I'm surprised. I was really expecting to plan a trip to Alabama, maybe even Mississippi. I was like, you know what? Is there an LST museum around? Can we go visit an LST? Actually, funny that you asked because... Well, you may know the answer to this. For those playing on the home game, what state would you think you would go to to see a landing ship tank? 
what's, what's you the, want me to be quiet so you can answer it? No, I want you to answer it. I think there's the LST 325 museum is in, I believe I, I'm kind of cheating. Well, I'm not cheating, but I, is it North Carolina? No, that would make sense. That's on the Southern coast. Would you think of to have an LST 325 moored and opened up in a landlocked state of Indiana? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. So <laughs> Evansville, Morris, Indiana. My new friend, Zach Morris, when I'd from like Saved to have by the him Bell? on the show. Huh? From Saved by the Bell? No, no, no. <laughs> That's after your time. He is the, he's a member of the LST Association. He's the editor of the Scuttlebutt, no, no relation to our show, obviously, but the Scuttlebutt newsletter, which is a newsletter for the LST Association. He just wrote a book about his grandfather who was on, let's throw another abbreviation in here. His grandfather <laughs> served on an LCI in World War II, which was Landing Craft Infantry. You know, that's the one that had the two gangplanks that would clank mm -hmm. down when it would come up to the beach, yep. the gangplanks were exposed and they'd let them down. And they, that the guys, a lot of guys landed at Cape Gloucester. Sid, Sid Phillips landed at Cape Gloucester on an LCI. Yeah. But anyway, Zach Morris is a member of the LC, LST Association. And uh, he was on uh, Preston Stewart's show and reached out to me. And he and I are talking. And I'd like to have him on this show because I think he wrote a really good book. I, I'm looking forward to reading it about his grandfather. But yeah, the LST 325, I forgot that it was in Indiana, but they, they've got a great website. They got some cool videos. I actually, he put me in touch with a couple of their guys and I was asking about, you know, certain minutiae that go ahead. You're going to ask something. No, I'm reading this and there's photos. It looks like this thing's underway. I think this thing actually <clears throat> yeah, they take goes it on tour. You and I, yeah, they do. Yes. We are going to Evansville, Indiana. We're gonna I'd love happen. to go. He. I would love to go visit this thing. Go check their website. I'm out. on it. That's what I'm looking at idiots. right now. That's what I'm on their website right now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Zach, we, we need to get him on the show, man. Very nice guy. $15. He actually quotes. Hang on. Let, here. Bear $15 with me a to go on huh? 15 bucks for adults. That's it. $15. That's cheaper than a movie. Yeah. We're going to Evansville. Here, Indiana. Book. I got it up here. We're still going to Evansville. Indiana. Well, I did have it up here. I don't know where the hell it is now. My wife moved it somewhere. The um, last mobile thing I was on was down in Tampa. I did two tours. I did two tours on the uh, SS American Victory Liberty ship that we'd got in Tampa Bay. That was fun. But That would be cool. That was fun. And we were in full. We were the living historians on there. That would that, that would be very cool. I, I want to. But, but yeah, man. So like Zach oh, Morris in his book quotes my dad a couple of times which was kind of cool so he was he was pretty happy to re, to be put in contact with me but our buddy preston put us in touch but i would love to go visit lst 325 that's uh it's i'm looking it's on the southeastern tip of indiana i got i got a little excited at first because apparently this bad boy trolls around the ohio river and mm -hmm. my family lives in warsaw kentucky on the ohio river i'm like wait a minute Maybe I can stop at my mom's, but no, she li that's that's a little further east on the uh, Kentucky route. But yeah, we're going to we're going to have oh, that's straight. Oh, well. It's basically dead nuts north of you. If you hopped on the old uh, sixty five north, <laughs> yeah. How far north? You're going uh, if you hopped on. Well, if you're in Birmingham and yeah. hopped on the old sixty five north, took that through Tennessee and cut up through Nashville. And then once you got on Nashville, you'd hop on the old 
this is my map reading skills, the 20, the 24 northeast, and then take that bad boy straight into uh, Kentucky, and then mm-hmm. hop on the old 169 north. That's going to take you straight to Evansville, Indiana. Right on. It'd be cool if they'd bring that thing down the seaboard to Mobile. Yeah, that'd be a long haul down the Ohio River. If they could get that thing down to Mobile, Alabama, that'd be great, man. Because that, you know, that's just down the road for me. Yeah. They got the the Alabama and the drum down there. No, oh, this thing looks fantastic. I wonder if they have any living historians on there. Plan your visit today. Fully operational. Looks like this yeah. participate. I wonder if this participates in. No, nah, they just have some photo here. Looks like it's partic- almost participating in the D-Day event in Ohio, but it's hard to see. But anyhow. We'll save that for now. We, we got to make that happen. Now that I got a job with vacation time, we got to make that happen. Speaking of making it happen, we're 111 minutes into this bad boy, Henry. I think we need to get close to wrapping this show up before people <laughs> start to yeah, lose, their, man. lose their minds. Uh, it's been a good one, though. Yeah. So anyhow, back to the plugs. Just a quick reminder. I covered at the beginning of the show, but Sunday, May 15th on YouTube, and we'll have the links posted on our page, um, is the... YouTube premiere of Walking Point, which you can see our own Jeff Copsetta featured in the movie, and you can see our name, What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, featured in the credits. Um, I will be part of that live stream on May 15th at 8 p.m. Central Time. And what do you have come down the pike, Henry? At the moment, you know, things in the works. Uh, as far as podcasts, I did the one with Veterans Breakfast Club last week, and that was really good. Um, you know, let's you and me talk after we get off the air about having the six Marine division historian and, and Neil McCallum on our show, because she, she emailed me and said she'd love to do that. That would be a chance to have a very sharp world war two veteran who's in the 29th Marines and at Sugarloaf Hill on this show. That'd Fantastic. be really cool. Um, that, that, you know, as far as shows, nothing really on the burner right now. Uh, no stuff I'm working on, uh, things are heating up with world war two magazine and, and, Karen and I have been in touch. She's about finished projects and ready to start getting my article ready to publish. And I'm plugging away on my book. So uh, it's a little early right now because it's what, March? April? No, it's May now. We're May 5th. Yeah, we're, we're May. May 2nd. One of my bucket list events has been at the aforementioned D Day event up in Ohio. But due to where it's located, I can never do it when I own my own business because I would have to shut down for five days. I'm going to try to make that this year because it's the last weekend of August, and by then I'll have vacation time. Mm-hmm. If not, I'm going to try to make it next year. But um, as we said a few episodes back, my living history season has been cut short due to blown out soles in my jump boots that I use for my Allied impressions. I still have my boondockers, but I don't have any Marine Corps events coming up. Um, I do have some boots on the way they won't be here until may because they're coming from across the pond and i am going to get my jump boots fixed but hopefully i'm hoping to get into one or two events here soon i just gotta get my boots fixed but summertime is coming up which for those of you not in florida well what's your point summertime's dead nuts in the middle of living history not down here in florida wearing wool in the florida sun in the middle of august is not fun so we do most of our events in the winter time so we don't die of heat exhaustion and um and uh, all that fun stuff but i'm hoping to maybe get an event in by the end of the year um and i ooh, I, I don't want to say anything i i found something but i don't want to give away the information because i don't want people to go out bid me but if i win this thing on ebay it'll be <coughs> very very cool so maybe 
by the next week. That'll be coming down the pike. But um, as always, if you'd like to help support the cause here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast in the full Digital 410 network, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com and click on the orange Patreon link and sign up. It's only a dollar a month. If you like us, if you like us, like us, it's uh, $3.50 a month. And if you really like us, you can sign up for the Long Arms Deep Pockets plan at $7.50 a month. And after month number two, you'll get a free T-shirt. And all that goes to help us here to uh, pay for web hosting, pay for um, bandwidth and everything else. It goes to put on a show. So if you really want to help us out, you can do that. Um, if you're a business owner and you want to advertise, email us at mail call at wtspworldwar2.com mail call at wtspworldwar2.com advertising on this podcast is less than your wife spends at starbucks on a day so email us and you'd be quite surprised and if you don't want to buy t-shirts and you don't want to sign up for patreon but you want to support the show simply share us with a like-minded friend and say hey you'll like what these guys are doing go check them out because after all word of mouth is the best and so for myself and one henry sledge we will see you all next week this has been a digital 410 production (laughs) 